Amen. I don't always or even usually uh, take a holiday uh, to preach the theme of that holiday. We ordinarily just sort of plow forward. Uh, Though on occasion I have given kind of a special Mother's Day sermon, and I I, want to take a break from the kind of series we've been doing on discipleship uh, to, to do that today. Part of it's that Mother's Day is a really uh, a special day for me, uh, for a lot of reasons. But the main thing has to do with my own relationship with God. As most of you know, if you've been here for any length of time, my own mother died when I was two, and I've always kind of wondered how life would be different if she hadn't died. Uh, but I was raised with a stepmother that I didn't get along with at all, to say the least, and who was distant and, and quite cold and, and sometimes physically abusive. And I grew up with, with a real kind of longing for a mother's love. And by the way, as I'm going through this message, I'm going to be talking about a mother's love and a father's love and masculine characteristics and feminine characteristics. And those are stereotypes. Those are general, generalizations. But you've got to work within them if you're going to kind of stretch them. But there are some men who are more motherly and some women who are more fatherly and some men who are more feminine and women who are more masculine. And don't feel bad about that. God made you the way you are and be who you are and don't get pigeonholed into any kind of box someone's trying to put you in. Uh, but I'm going to be speaking in terms of descriptive generalities. And we're, we're uh, created to grow up receiving uh, a whole-orbed kind of love that includes those stereotypical masculine sort of qualities and those stereotypical feminine kind of qualities. And I grew up longing for a love, uh, a longing for, a hunger for, that distinctly mother's kind of love. The Lord revealed to me at about the age of 20 that I... I uh, was holding on to resentment towards my stepmother, bitterness and unforgiveness towards my stepmother, and that God wanted to, at this point in my life, take care of that. God revealed to me, though I didn't know it was, it was way beneath the level of consciousness, God revealed to me that as all resentment and all unforgiveness does, it was polluting my life. It was, it was jaundicing my perception of the world, and so God wanted to free me from that. And most surprisingly for me, I had never heard of this before or read about it or anything, but God wanted to reveal to me that the need that I had, the reason I had that unforgiveness was because of the ongoing hunger I had in my heart for that uh, woman, female, motherly kind of love. And the debt that my heart believed my mother owed me was because I was hanging on to that hunger and that God wanted to meet that hunger, meet that need. God wanted to give me that motherly kind of love. And I opened up my life at that point to receive from God a a distinct quality, a distinct dimension, a distinct aspect of God's love that was so healing to me. And in being healed and in being made whole, I was able to then release my stepmother from the debt, the love I should have got that I was still holding her to. I was able, I was empowered to free her. All of our being set free as a result of a fullness we have in Christ. So Mother's Day for me is a very special day because in some ways... It's where I got in contact with my real mother. Uh, And that relationship has meant so much to me. And so I want to speak on the motherhood of God. Now I know that that is, for some people, a little bit jarring. We don't talk a lot about the motherhood of God. For some people, it's maybe even a little bit nervous, a little bit scary. It's a little bit controversial. Uh, You know, um, they're afraid that when you start talking this way, you're on your way to becoming some kind of radical feminist, married daily, let's attack men and castrate them sort of a thing. And I can assure you that that's not my agenda. (laughs) (laughs) Really? 
really? I know, I, 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 that, but so, but we have buzzers about this kind of thing. Okay, here comes this kind of radical feminism. And the overreaction against that nonsense causes us to miss a very important dimension of the word of God. Now, it's true that the Bible usually depicts God in male images with, ma- with male metaphors, always refers to God with male pronouns. But it's also true that it doesn't exclusively do that. Part of the reason why you have a male dominance of, of uh, p- pictures of God in the Bible is that ancient Israel, like almost all ancient cultures, was heavily patriarchal. That means male-dominated. And so male characteristics were uh, regarded as more praiseworthy than female characteristics, as they have been in most cultures throughout history. Another reason is perhaps that a lot of the pagan cultures did worship goddesses and, the, bio, and, and, and the, uh, the Jews wanted to separate themselves from that sort of paganism. And another reason is that in terms, God is neither male nor female in himself, but in terms of his relationship with the, ro- uh, with the world, he plays a role that is more in line with stereotypical masculine qualities. Uh, he's, he's the aggressor, the initiator, and, and things of that sort. Still, it's true and it's important to recognize, though we hardly ever acknowledge this, that there is a surprising amount of, of uh, descriptions of God in the Bible that are feminine and that, that uh, evoke a, a distinct picture of God and a distinct relationship with God. And so I want to spend this morning looking at that segment of scripture. I'll read a couple of verses just to kind of launch this thing, uh, verses that depict God in in a motherly sort of way. And uh, then I'll break it down into why this is important. And in the course of doing that, we'll cover a lot of other scriptures as well. So Deuteronomy 32 says this, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, You forgot the God who gave you birth. Their God is portrayed as a mother. Isaiah chapter 1, Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up. That was something that only mothers did in ancient Israel. But they have rebelled against me. I was their mother, but my children have rebelled against me. Psalms 91 says, For he will deliver you from the snare of the follower and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Here you have an interesting feature of of the the, the biblical stuff on the feminine side of God, if you will. That the Bible language is always conventional, and and, uh, the Bible always refers to God with a masculine pronoun, even when it's using female imagery. The, the imagery here is of a, of a mother bird protecting its, its, its young. In fact, you find that metaphor five different times. Jesus uses it of himself when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would gather you uh, under my wings as a hen does its chicks, uh, but you wouldn't come unto me. So the metaphor is used quite a bit about God, from, uh, uh, of God in the Bible. But there, are, there is this distinct... Uh, side aspect feature of the scriptural revelation where you get a motherly side uh, of God. Now, it's important to at least at times look at this for three reasons. One is this. We need to always remind ourselves that, as Jesus says in John 4, God is spirit. That God isn't a man and God isn't a woman. God is spirit. God has characteristics that are masculine. God has characteristics that are feminine. But God isn't more male than female or more female than male. The truth of the matter is this, and this is what needs to be said, and it's sad that it needs to be said, but it does. That women need to know that they are as much in the image of God as men men are. And that's not always communicated clearly. 
You are a bearer of God's image. You're made in God's likeness as much as men are. God looks like you and you look like God in every sense of the term just as much as men look like God and God looks like them in terms of the characteristics that they stereotypically have. The Bible says this in Genesis chapter 1. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. That's what makes us distinct from the animal kingdom. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The likeness of God is displayed in different ways through male and female. The difference is a good difference. It's supposed to be there because it's only the, the uh, total spectrum of human qualities that reveals who God is, that, that images God. I don't know if there's been a culture on the planet in the history of the world that's ever lived this out consistently. In almost all cultures throughout history, women have been treated as inferior, as less in the image of God than, than men are. And I submit to you that that still continues on with rare exceptions to this day. It started actually in the Western tradition back in ancient Greece. The, the Greeks had this idea that the two greatest attributes are physical strength and intellectual strength. And since they thought men are superior in both, men are superior. They had developed this stereotype and then a culture that ensured that the stereotype would be reinforced. That's what usually happens. That men are rational and women are emotional and reason is a good thing, but emotion is a bad thing. And strength, you know, being able to control is, is a good thing and, and not being able to control, not having as much strength is a bad thing. So they're very explicit about it. Men are superior to women. And sadly, even though you find so much in the Bible, especially the ministry of Jesus that completely uh, rejects that assumption... And that, that, that Greek way of thinking crept into the church early on. And so you find even beginning in the second century some derogatory, even, even terrible things being said about women in the church. Right from the get-go, it was men who were doing the theologizing. Women, it was just thought, couldn't really think rational thoughts about God. So all the men are doing the theologizing, which gives it a strong bias. And some of these men would say things like this. St. Augustine said that when a... When a uh, a woman uh, goes to heaven, she's going to be a man. She'll take on male characteristics. She'll grow male genitalia. That's, in fact, that was a rather widespread belief in the early church. And that's supposed to be heaven. <laughs> it's like eternal promise keepers, you know. It's like, uh, I, I like promise keepers, but don't lock me in there forever, all right? Uh, too, too many men around here. Uh, it, it, see, but the, now what does that say? St. Augustine recommended that women fast a lot because when you fast a lot, your menstrual period will, st will stop and that will make you more like a man. I can hear some hissing. <laughs> so, who's this St. Augustine guy? There was a, uh, a, a tendency in the, in, in the early church continued on through the Middle Ages where uh, men were doing the theologizing and early on they began to take a vow of celibacy. Uh, having relationships with a woman was seen as being, even in a marriage context, sort of a, a sub-spiritual thing to do. So a lot of men began to take this vow of celibacy. Most of them didn't have the gift of celibacy. What does that create? Well, it creates a lot of men doing theologizing who are on, in, in constant temptation. And as anyone who's taken Psychology 101 will tell you, uh, the easiest thing, the most common thing for the human mind to do is to project your own inner struggles on somebody else and demonize them. You know what I'm talking about? It's called projectionism. 
And so what happens is you find a whole strand in the Christian tradition of the, theologians saying things like this, that, men, that women, they're the temptresses of the devil. Uh, they are the gateway to hell. They are seduced by the enemy. The enemy uses them to, to turn our minds. They, they blame the person rather than owning up to it. And so there's this, there's this what's called a misogynist tradition in the church of some very negative things said about women. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas went so far as to say that a woman is a defective male, that something goes wrong in half the population. Now think about this. If it's half the population, how wrong can it be? Uh, but he, he suspected it had something to do with uh, the way the wind was blowing when two people were uh, copulating that determined whether you were made a man or a woman. And, and uh, when it's blowing in the wrong direction, you're a woman. Uh, sad, sad uh, things. But you know what? I meet a lot of women today who just, whether it was said to them or not, they grew up knowing that their dad and maybe even their mom secretly wished that they were a boy. And a lot of cultures, that's just out loud. Uh, in, in, in some cultures, uh, up till very recently, you were allowed to, uh, if you had a female child, put them on the hill to die because, you know, they're not going to help out around the house as much and then you've got to pay for their dowry, to, you buy, pay someone to, to marry them off or whatever. Incredible misogynist, uh, women-hating things have been said. And so in the light of that, and it echoes on to this day, we need to periodically take time to just announce uh, that, w- woman, you are gloriously and wonderfully and, and uh, uh, made in the image of the Almighty God. Amen. God made you just right. And the distinctly feminine characteristics that you might have, those are not a weakness. Those are not a defect. Those are not secondary. Those are not an imperfect. They are just right. God wants it that way. And in their own way, they reflect who God is because God has those characteristics as well. We need to say there's so much that has been placed upon women. So many, uh, you know, just because of their gender, things you can't do, shouldn't do, whatnot. And, and there's a time where you need to say that in the light of Jesus Christ, in the light of who God has made us to be, and in the light of who God has saved us to be, woman, throw off those shackles. Don't go by those shackles anymore. Be who God created you to be. Be all that God created you to be. Rise up and, and cease the ministry and do the gift and do the, the, the calling that God has called you with. Amen. It was an ingenious ploy of the devil that the church got into far too early to really take out half the population of the kingdom of God and and disqualify them from ministry. It's one of the reasons why we here are so emphatic on women being uh, involved in ministry. There are some cultures, such as first century Jewish culture, where in certain contexts, because of the strongholds of the culture, it's not advantageous to the gospel to be that. But we, we must not think that, that the first century limitations are God's ideal. God's ideal is this. In Christ, it says in Galatians 3.27, there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor slave, neither rich nor poor, that in Christ we are one, praise God. In Christ, we're all filled with the Spirit, all redeemed by the power of God, all called the ministry. And the only qualification for you in ministry is this. What is your gift? What is your passion? What is your character? And what is your calling? Gender has nothing to do with it. Do with it. I don't know where anyone got the idea that having a little more testosterone in a penis qualifies you for leadership. I'm here to tell you that it doesn't. I'm sorry if I'm going to be a little bit blunt, but it's the truth. Woman, you can be a leader if, if you're gifted in being a leader and on the board if you're gifted in being on the board and a preacher if you're gifted in preaching and a teacher if you're gifted in teaching and a senior pastor if you're gifted at being a senior pastor. Amen. Amen. 
So often it's, I, 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 you know, you hear the verse quoted in 2 Timothy where he says, a woman should not teach or have authority over a man. Boom, there we go, and the, that verse gets repeated. Well, read the three verses before where it says a woman shouldn't wear broidered hair, uh, any braids in the, in the auditorium, shouldn't wear any jewelry, any jewelry in the auditorium, shouldn't wear uh, uh, costly apparel, any costly apparel in it, and then shouldn't teach. So you're dealing with all first century things there. Uh, and, you know, it, it, uh, why, why the last one is eternalized as a timeless truth, but the first three aren't, makes me suspect that maybe something else is going on there. But we understand that was slavery, which was uh, not confronted in the first century because of the cultural conditions, that that wasn't God's ideal because of Galatians 3, in Christ there's neither bond nor, nor, nor uh, neither slave nor free. So also we should understand that God's ideal has been, and you see it so clearly in, in the New Testament, God's ideal is to press to the point where it's not a gender or race or social status that qualifies anyone for anything. It's the Spirit of God working in and through their life. So the first reason why it's important to remember to get a full orb picture of God is to remind ourselves that men and women, male and female, are created in the image of God. The second thing is this. There is, as we'll see here shortly, a distinct uh, aspect of God that is motherly, that is more feminine. And, and if we're going to have a healthy, full orb picture of God and relate to God in a, in a healthy way, we need to remind ourselves of that. Part of the problem is that throughout church history, it was almost all men doing the theologizing. There are a few exceptions to this. Uh, most of them were put to death, however, because uh, it was men who were running the show. So men were doing the theologizing. And one result of that is that you get uh, the, the traditional picture of God, what's called the classical picture of God, is sort of, um, it's sort of the, the, the fantasy of what every male thinks they want to be. It was an overly male view of God. The main, the main attributes that were seen as praiseworthy is that God is, is all-controlling. Okay, it's about strength. and He always gets his way. Boy, wouldn't we want that to be the case? And, and, and God is, is above being affected by anything. He is, the, the, the term they used was immutable, which simply uh, didn't refer to God's, only God's character, which is, is immutable, but it meant to say that God is in every respect unmoving. Nothing can affect God. Nothing impacts God. And then they said that God was impassable. Uh, that was another attribute, which, which means that God's above passion. God's above emotion. God's above, you know, uh, being, being uh, emotionally touched or vulnerable in any way. And these were seen as being praiseworthy attributes. Now I submit to you that if you just look at the Bible and take the Bible for, for what it's worth, look at the narrative of the Bible, you don't come out away at all with that kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger macho view of God. Don't tell me God's not impacted by anything. Read the Bible. He's impacted all the time. He grieves. Don't tell me he's beyond emotion. Like, that's a positive thing. Whoever thought that being beyond emotion, being invulnerable, being invincible, being immutable was like a praiseworthy thing. Pity the person that defines strength as, as being in a position where no one can touch you, no one can hurt you. Boy, aren't you strong. That, that is, that, that's the epitome of weakness. It takes strength to lay the cards on the table and open your life out to someone and give them uh, the, the, the say-so and the love to the point where they can actually hurt you. Yes, God is supremely strong. Just look at how vulnerable he is in Scripture. Yes, God is supremely great. Look at how emotional he is in Scripture. Don't tell me he's above emotion. He cries in the Bible. He grieves in the Bible. He gets frustrated in the Bible. He's got emotions running all over the place. Don't tell me that God doesn't in any respect change and is invincible. 
Look to Jesus Christ, who is the, our picture of God here on earth. If you see me, you see the Father. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. How do you ever get away with the idea that God is, is too exalted to be affected by anything when he's hanging there on the cross, taking upon himself the sin of the world, the destruction of the world, the hell of the world, the wrath of the world, the wrath of God the Father. Here he is there suffering like this. He became a man. That's about change. He took upon himself sin. That's about change. He suffers. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Taking me, what you see on the cross is the epitome of a God who's so strong, so omnipotent, so sovereign. He gives people the power to put him to death. And that's how he changes the world. He doesn't flex his incredible muscle and say, my way or the highway, and, and, and control everything. What he does is he dies for us and says, won't you follow me? Do you see my love? Do you see where I'm at? And some people might say, well, that sounds like an effeminate, weak God. And what I would say is you got, you've got a real jaded view of weakness and strength if that's what you think. You know, that, that is, in a sense, feminine, but that's why it's so strong. It is strong. It is laudable. It is praiseworthy. If we're going to have a full-or picture of God, we've got to let the Bible tell us what God is like instead of a uh, projection of, of uh, one way of thinking about him. The third thing is this, and it follows right on the tails of, of uh, the, the first two. It affects our relationship with God in some profound ways when we see uh, the feminine as well as the masculine, the motherly as well as the fatherly dimensions of God. And I know that we're not used to hearing this. Some of us, especially if you've been raised in conservative evangelical circles, this sounds kind of jarring. I, I understand that. But uh, part of walking with the Lord is letting God push us out of our comfort zone. And look at what Scripture says about things. So I'll break down very quickly four areas where our relationship with God is impacted by understanding that that motherhood reflects God as much as fatherhood. Isaiah 49 says this. There's a distinct kind of love that is most usually associated with a mother. It says, Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even when that child screws up. Even these may forget, I suppose, but I will never forget you. Here, God is portraying himself as a, as a mother who says, I, I nursed you, I, I brought you forth from the womb, and therefore I could never forget you. Maybe human mothers could, but I never could. And then he goes one step further and says, see, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your name is right there. How could I ever forget you? And it's really a prophecy about, uh, of Christ, 800 years before Christ was born, where, where uh, the scars that are in Christ's hands because of his being nailed to the cross are, are a reminder, uh, if you will, of his love for us. It's as though that scar has the, 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 word, the name Greg Boyd written in it. God could never forget me because of that scar. What you get here is this. The Lord is saying that my love for you is such that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter who you become, I, I, I'm going to be that, I'm going to have that motherly love for you. You'll always be the child that I nursed, the child that I reared. Uh, I, I could never forget you. There's a distinct motherly quality to that. I read a story this last week as I was kind of preparing for, uh, for this message of a mother who, uh, whose son committed murder, first-degree murder, was sentenced to life in prison, and he was guilty. He confessed to it. The father already had a bad relationship with the son, so hardly ever visited him. And the siblings uh, did for the first couple of years, but eventually they grew, grew fewer and fewer. In time, the mother and the father separated for a variety of reasons, and it was just now left to the mother. The father never visited the man, and the siblings never visited the man. In fact, they moved that man to a different state in North Carolina, in, in, into that penitentiary. And this mother 
uh, gave up all of her friends where she was living, her job, all the, the things, that it, her life there, and moved close to that penitentiary so that she could visit her murder husband, her uh, child, three days a week, which is what the, 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 the penitentiary allowed. And um, she would, it wasn't because she believed in his innocence, because he was guilty, but to a mother's love insofar as it reflects God's love, being guilty isn't the reason to stop loving. You're always my child. I nursed you. And so you remember that there's a compassionate uh, edge there. And she would, bring him, she would bring him cookies when they'd allow her and clothing and extra blankets. And when everyone else in the world had forgotten him, his mother didn't forget him. Maybe they remembered him only to remember to hate him, but his mother brought him the one thing that he needed most, and that is just a reminder that even though you're here in prison, I love you, and that love's never going to go away, and I'm going to be with you. Uh, and, and 28 years later, which is when the story was written, that mother, three times a week, was still visiting that boy in prison. That is God's love for you. That is God's love for you. And it may be that you're here this morning and you have put yourself in a prison, a prison of your own making, perhaps. Uh, maybe you have been on the run from God or maybe you've made some really poor cho- choices and you're really in a dark place right now. Uh, you've you got to know that, that you've got a God who with a mother's unforgettable kind of love is pursuing you and wants to restore that relationship with you. You have got the, the keys to the penitentiary in this, in this uh, regard, and maybe you can't get yourself out, but you can let him in. Let God, with this motherly kind of love, into your life. God is, has a distinct motherly kind of love. God has a nurturing motherly kind of love, the Bible tells us. Isaiah chapter 46 says this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from your birth. Look at that, carried from the womb. I'm always carrying you. Even to your old age, I am he. Even when you turn gray, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. The picture you get here is of an ageless mother, an ageless, a mother who does not age and brings forth a child. And when that child is young, the mother carries the child. And even when the child then grows to adulthood and seems, he thinks he's self-sufficient, actually that mother is carrying that child. And then when the child grows old and is gray, this ageless mother then, and when the child can no longer walk on its own once again, that ageless mother is there. At every stage of your life, the Lord is telling us uh, God is there to carry us, to sustain us, to, to nurture us. And one application of that to our life would be this. No matter how mature you are or think you are in the Lord, don't ever think that you're too mature or too grown up that you don't need to be carried by the Lord. The truth of the matter is is that without the sustaining love of God, none of us can walk with God and stay with God and grow in God. God, with a motherly kind of love, is always carrying us at every stage of our life. God's always been there. Hosea even says it in a little bit more beautiful way. Hosea says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim was part of Israel. He says, I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. The imagery there is of picking up a little baby who's too young to know that you're the one ministering to the baby, healing the baby when the baby's maybe injured. But God says, This is what I did to Ephraim, my people. I led them with cords of human kindness and with bands of love. He taught Ephraim to walk with with bands of love. Now, what's God getting at there? It's this. In ancient Israel, mothers, it was always mothers, would teach their children how to walk. They had these cords that they'd tie around them, and they'd carry them like like little marionette puppets. 
And, and they teach kids to walk like that. Like we have these little jumper things that kids get into and they jump up and down. Well, that's kind of what they did. And they teach them how to walk with these cords of love. And the kid would gradually, you know, learn how to walk on, on its own, you know. It's, it, was a, it was a very, very tender thing. And what the Lord is saying here is that, that that's, his, that's, that's his relationship with us. And then he goes on. Who, I, am, I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. Little tiny baby. Your baby's skin is so soft, isn't it? You just love to rub it and, and you just hold it there. And I bend down to them and fed them. This isn't really a macho Arnold Schwarzenegger picture of God, is it? This is a God who has this motherly love, who teaches children how to walk by just tenderly, cords of love. God's love is always teaching us to walk. And so far as we walk, it's because God's love taught us to walk. And, and bends down, gets down on the ground and feeds us like, like little, little children. Uh, I, I holds us close to, to God's cheek. Kind of like today, we, you know, we do that, but now it seems like the most common form of affection between a mother and a baby is this sort of baby kissing addiction that they have. Um, it, it, some men have it too, where you're holding the, the, the kid and you just completely slobber all over their head because you're constantly kissing it. They're talking to you. Oh yeah, I just the other day was out shopping and I just, I thought... It's a tender thing. It's like you can't help yourself. I mean, I just, I, you know, oh, hey, nice weather we're having. <laughs> well, it will do your soul good to remind yourself that uh, that's how God, that's a, a dimension of the relationship God wants to have with you. I think back and, and I, 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 I can know that at every stage of my life, God in a motherly kind of way was there. I didn't have a mother as I was being raised who looked at me with eyes of affection and just enjoyed who I was and, and, and was there in the good times and the bad times. I didn't have that. But even though I didn't know God, God knew me. And even though I didn't know a mother at that, t- that time, God as a mother knew me and was teaching me to walk. And even though I didn't know it was, it was God that was healing me, God was healing me. And with cords of love and kindness, uh, turning every experience in my life into, a, into a, something that would, that, that, that would be fashioned later on to use me in ministry at every stage of my life. However, even when I was running from God, even when I was doing drugs, even when I was just trying to go my own way, God, like a, like a relentless mother, was there uh, and... and, and uh, 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 working with my experiences, working in me and through me, teaching me how to walk, wanting so badly to lift me up as a little baby and rub his cheek on my cheek and, and coddle me. It will do your heart good. It will do your soul good. It will, it will fill out your relationship with God to put yourself in the position of a little infant and see God wanting just to pick you up and rub his cheek, her cheek, next to your cheek and leading you with cords of love. Because of that, God also comforts us. This is the third area of a motherly kind of love. This is the most amazing uh, passage that, that, uh, on motherhood, the motherhood of God in the Bible. And you just got to know that the Bible is not at all nearly as prudish as we tend to be. And so just know that going into this. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn for her. God is speaking about Jerusalem at this point, and, and uh, Jerusalem's in a bad way right now, but God is saying, I'm going to restore Jerusalem. Now look at this. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink, as a little babies, you will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. 
You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. I think if I preached a sermon about how, how God wants to, you know, nurse us through the church and how we can just, the church, we can just be satisfied at the breast of the church or something, I, I bet I get a few emails. Uh, but don't send them to me. Send them to Isaiah. That's the imagery that Isaiah is using. And then something amazing happens because now Isaiah replaces Jerusalem with God. And, and says this, the Lord says, as a mother comforts her child, the word comfort there is the word to, to appease, to console. He's still using this baby metaphor to calm the baby down. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And now the imagery is that Jerusalem is sort of like the breasts of God. And I know that just jars our conservative evangelical sensibilities, but that's, that, that's the imagery that is there. The point of it is this. There's a distinct nurturing, caring, consoling, comforting quality to God that's most usually, stereotypically associated with the mother that God has available to us. And, and, and we need to just be aware of that. You know, growing up, I had this hunger for a mother's love. It was a part of my life that just wasn't uh, satisfied. I, I remember going to, I had to go to Mass every single morning as a Catholic boy going to a Catholic school. The Mass was said in Latin. I was hi- hyperactive. wasn't a good situation at all. Had to go to this Mass, and so I'd occupy myself trying to not act out. Uh, we, we didn't quite do church the way our kids do church, all right? Uh, our rule was no noise and no movement. <laughs> And so I would stare at, at the statue at the front of the church of the Virgin Mary, a beautiful statue of the Virgin Mary. Uh, it was just, she had a radiant fe- uh, features, and she was holding the baby Jesus, and there's just this love on her face, and, and this radiance and kindness. And I remember looking at that statue and sometimes feeling like I was sinning because I was jealous of Jesus. I was envious of Jesus, like, Jesus, you're so lucky. I, I didn't really think it all through then. I didn't know what was going on, but my experience of motherhood wasn't like that. And I longed for that. And I don't think theologically it was quite accurate for me to be, for long, to long to be held in the arms of the Virgin Mary. That probably wasn't theologically accurate. But the longing was a natural one, and it was, it was even a good one. But it wasn't until I was 20 where I discovered that what I was really longing for was, was those motherly arms of God to hold me and to have those eyes look at me like that and to drink deeply of the n- nurturing love that, that God has for me. God is our comforter and our nurturer. And finally, God is our motherly defender or protector. Listen to this. In Hosea it says, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. God's referring to anyone who comes after uh, his kids. God's saying, I will be like a, fe- like a she-bear whose kids have been stolen. And I'm told, never seen this, but I'm told that when a mother bear uh, has its kids, uh, its cubs threatened or stolen, it turns into a real bear. It's a, you don't want to mess with this. It's, it's an out-of-the-control rage. And God is saying, you go after my kids and I will turn into a female bear. Then he says in Isaiah chapter 42 about those who have been oppressing his people. For a long, and listen to this passage, it's just astounding. I, I, I love it. For a long time I have kept my peace. I bet less than one out of a hundred people in this auditorium have ever heard a message uh, on this passage uh, that really brought out its, its metaphor here. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Okay, I've been holding back my rage here. He says, now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. God is saying, when I decide to act on this, it's not going to be pretty. Uh, Now, all you mothers, you know what it's like to go through labor. Uh, 
you weren't really, you know, whistling skiffity doo dah during that time, were you? Uh, a, a woman going through labor can be very, very loud. My wife was, was, I think, on the spectrum of things kind of in the middle. But I remember our second child, honey, remember with Alicia when she was born? We had to go to this kind of low-income place because we had no income. And uh, we were very poor. And so you had to have your baby in this room where there was only like these curtains that separated you from other people having babies. And in this case, the lady next to us, do you remember her, honey? Uh, how could you forget? I've never, ever heard anything like this in all my life. I, even horror movies, I mean, it doesn't come close to this. If someone had a dull knife and was cutting her eyes out, it wouldn't have sounded any worse. She was just like, oh, God, oh, you did this to me, I, I kill you. you know? It was just, and poor Shelly is just getting ready to go into hard labor. You know, it's like, is that going to happen to me? I mean, it's an out of the control, desperate, panting, gasping rage kind of a thing. No, 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 no. Keep that picture in mind. <laughs> ah! Keep that picture in mind. And I dare you to now think about God when it comes to you or anyone that will come against you or anything in the spiritual world that will come against you. God turns into this woman in labor, a she-bear, and there is this (laughs) kind of a thing. And that's about his love for you, about God's care for you. Amen. Yes, we have God as this warrior protector, and that's true. God is a military fighter, and that's true. God's a mighty king, and that's true. But this brings a dimension to the whole thing that you never quite get in any other way. I read a story about, a, uh, what was her name? Candace, Candace Franklin of Hartford, Connecticut, who uh, uh, she got out of her car uh, several years ago, and someone tried to carjack her car just jumped in the car and started to speed off with it. Her two kids were in the back seat. And apparently the carjacker didn't know this, or maybe he did. But Candace then ran after this car with apparently supernatural speed and got a hold of the handle on the door, screaming bloody murder all the way. The car got out of the parking lot and got on the road and went down the roadways while she's hanging on to this door. Her skin being ripped off down to the muscle, but she hung on to that door. Somehow she managed to get that door open and get inside of that car and began to pummel that man. <laughs> began to just completely she-bear-like, desperation, like screaming every ounce of the way, pummel that man. And they said if the police hadn't shown up, the guy might have died. You see... You can be twice as tall and three times as strong, but you go after a woman's child. If that woman has the kind of character of God in this, and she's going to waste you, (laughs) you're dealing with a she-bear there. So also, God, when it comes, this is the kind of love that God has. You go after my kids. That's why Jesus said, if anyone offends one of these little ones, talking about his children, it'd be better for them to have a milestone put around their neck and them thrown into the sea because it's not going to be pretty. And so you got to know this. We were taken captive. We have been kidnapped. We were in the backseat of the car. The difference is that we agreed to it. We willingly said, yeah, kidnap, kidnap us. And so we individually and as a race have been brought into captivity to the devil. And now there's all sorts of oppression that is upon us, all sorts of sin that we've got to struggle 
struggle with all sorts of pain and evil and suffering in the world that was never part of the design. But even though we chose it for ourselves and willfully were co-opted by the enemy, God has been having his hand on that handle, screaming bloody murder, I'm going to get my kids back. And what you find in the biblical narrative is God pursuing us to get the kids back. And if you think I'm exaggerating, look to the cross of Calvary, because there you will see a mother's rage, the extent to which a, a loving mother will go to get her kids back, crying out on the cross of Calvary in, in pain and the agony. Why? Because someone got a hold of my kids, and I'm going to get my kids back, whatever it takes, however, whatever, whatever pain I got to experience, screaming, panting, gasping all the way, but God gets his children back. And that says a lot about you and your worth before God, and it says a lot about God. God has got this desperate love, a mother's love for kids who have been kidnapped. It causes God to scream like a woman in labor, hold on to the door like Candace Franklin, and never let go till she gets back the child of her dreams. Do you know God, that dimension of God's love here this morning? Do you have, is that part of your framework on looking on God? Do you, maybe do you have a one-sided picture of God? Are there aspects of your relationship with God that aren't being, aren't being actualized because your picture of God is just to some degree limited? Would you close your eyes and pray? I'm just going to ask this question. Is there anybody here who you have never maybe known that God loved you like that? That God would go to bat for you like that? And you know that you need that kind of love. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Would you raise your hand right here? I'm going to take 30 seconds to do this. I want to give that invitation. Little, little girl right there. Wonderful. Anybody else? Raise your, your hand. Oh, back there, praise God. Over there, praise God. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Raise your hand. You want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You see, he, he's done this for you. There's only one thing left, and that is for you to acknowledge that. And let that become the focus of your life. Anybody else, just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you from up here. Raise your hand very high so I can see it. Amen. Back there, several people. Another person. Another person. Wonderful. You need to know, you need to know that Jesus died for this to happen. Okay, I'm going to pray. We're all going to pray for these folks. But I want to ask one more question. And that is this. Keep your eyes closed. Are there any here, brother, I see that hand, they continue to go up. Wonderful. God knows your heart. This is a commitment time for you. Well, maybe it's the case that you, like me, grew up missing that mother's kind of a love. And you never realized that God can meet that need. In fact, maybe it's the case that you've held on to resentment and bitterness towards your mother on some level. God wants you to empower you to release her today. And so I want to, if you're in that situation, would you raise your hand? It's before God. Yes, you need healing. You need the fullness of a full orb relationship with God all over the place. Wonderful, wonderful. I want the prayer team to come forward as I pray. And I want to invite anybody who wants to uh, get prayer for any need whatsoever to come forward with that. But first, I want to pray for these uh, dozen or so who committed their life to Christ. And a- after this service, I want to encourage you who raised your hand are going to pray this prayer to come over to this side of the auditorium. And uh, there's, there's some information you need to get. Uh, it's just free, no strings attached, but we just want to help you get started on the Christian walk. But pray this prayer from the depths of your being, and we'll all join with you. Lord God, you are our Father. And you are a mother. 
I now see that you love me even though I'm a sinner. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, and help me live for you the rest of my life. I surrender my all, everything I am, over to you in Jesus' name. And now I want to pray for those others who raised their hand. Uh, Our Lord God, um, there's a distinct quality to your love that we sometimes miss, but which your word reveals. I pray, Lord God, that, that however it lands with the people who uh, raised their hand this morning and even those who didn't, I pray, Lord, that your distinct motherly kind of love would minister to them, Lord. Uh, our role, the role of our earthly mothers was to point us to you in the first place. And when that didn't happen, you just bypass that ordinary way and do it directly. Do it directly here, Lord. I pray, God, that those who need this would feel even your mother-like arms around them and understand that your love for them, that nurturing, comforting, sustaining, protecting kind of love is there. And Lord God, make us whole with that. And Father, I pray that for any in this auditorium within hearing distance of my mouth right now, who have any degree of resentment or or undone work with their mother, unforgiveness towards their mother, Lord, would you, by ministering to them in your motherly kind of way, empower them to release, set free their mothers, and now to love them as they are, maybe as imperfect as they are, but to not walk with this spiritual cancer inside of us. We give you all the praise and all the glory our Lord God, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Uh, The altar is open. If you would like to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to do that. Go out and love your mothers and be loved by your heavenly mother. God bless.